This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. It was the year 1985 and the end of another school day for the high school students. They boarded their school buses and began the trip home, but some of them would not make it home that day. This is Apple for the Teacher, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Anna Thomas. Today's episode is called Bridge Over Troubled Water. The school bus was taking students home. What happened? Students at the Voronto High School in Johannesburg, South Africa, had just finished their school day and began boarding their buses for home. The school had four buses, which would transport students to four different parts of the town where they lived. A student by the name of Chantal Parkin was in the last bus. It was a double-decker bus and had 72 passengers. The bus was coming close to the stop where she was getting off and it was just starting to go across a bridge over a dam. Chantal walked towards the door of the bus, ready to disembark, when she recalls what happened next. I saw the bus burst through the fence. It shook as it broke the fence. I bumped my head, then took a last breath before I lost consciousness. The bus had suddenly veered off the bridge, through the barrier and into the dam. Chantal said, My stop was 100 metres away, so I was getting ready to get off the bus. At that stage, it wasn't funny, but when I looked up, I saw we were going into the water, and I said to my friend, look, we're going into the water, thinking that the water was like a metre deep, and we're going to walk now in this muddy water, but not realising what's happening. The moment the bus hit the water, I lost my balance, and I knocked my head against something, and I lost a little bit of consciousness. As the water filled the bus, I got conscious again, and I gasped for a little bit of air. Exactly how I got out, I don't know. All I could see was like the sun. I was swimming towards the sun, and the next moment I was on top of the bus, where I found the driver and a few other people already out of the water. Another student who was on the bus was 17-year-old Peter Cohen, who managed to escape and swam to the surface and onto the roof of the bus. But he didn't stay there for long, diving right back in and helping others to get to safety on the roof. Peter dived back in five times, each time being able to save someone. Meanwhile, there were now many people who had come across the scene, helping where they could. Parents also began arriving, and Peter's mother said, Friends told me not to worry about Peter, because he is a strong swimmer. Some told me he was safe because they saw him on the roof of the bus. I was relieved and then started looking for my daughter, Ronald, who was 14. Peter had managed to escape with another student, Marcel Wilsmark, who described here what happened. I remember the screams and the feeling of utter disbelief. I don't think anyone could process what was happening. Peter Cohen, another boy and I, climbed over the back seat and attempted to kick out the emergency exit windows. But if ever a myth was rudely shattered, it happened in that moment. None of the emergency windows even budged an inch. We stopped in time to grasp a final gulp of air 
and then the water was over our heads and it was silent. I shall briefly attempt to describe the scene underwater. The West Dean Dam is fed by about seven fountains or so, and water runoff is collected here as well. The water is extremely muddy and murky. Visibility underwater is about 30 centimetres. The water is ice cold and numbness quickly sets in. While I was underwater, I felt other children's hands and arms across my body. I managed to move towards the window I was sitting at. The top slide window was stuck when I got in the bus, but when the bus entered the water, it broke on impact. I broke out the remaining shards and eventually managed to get out that way. Meanwhile, someone in the front bus had seen what had happened and screamed. Theo de Coca said, Suddenly I heard a scream. I just looked around in time to see the bus sink into the water. Mathis and I stopped the bus driver and jumped out immediately. We took off our shoes and jackets in the run and dived into the water together. The first sight that came out of the dark water was that of our friend Dion Burks. He was exhausted and we grabbed him by the arms on both sides and swam ashore with him. Then we went back to the bus where we started dodging the other kids as quickly as possible. I cannot remember how we got out of the water like that, but the next moment Mathis pulled a girl out the window. To my dismay, I saw that it was my sister, Eureka. We helped her to the roof of the bus together, but she was unconscious. Most people who were rescued had their mouths open. I do not know what told me I should open her mouth, but I did. She gritted her teeth, but I forced it open. I pressed my finger into her throat and took her tongue out of the back of her mouth. Only then did the water flow from her throat. People from the ambulance team then took over from us. After Eureka, Mathis and I also got Connie Pretorius out of the bus, but she was already dead. So too were the others who we took out. I do not consider us heroes. Anyone would have done it in the same circumstances. The worst was that we stood on the roof of that bus and knew there were people among us, people we knew who were dying, and we could do nothing about it. We helped as fast as we could, but later we could not swim anymore. We were too tired. His sister Eureka said, I experienced a feeling of dying. I felt as if I was going towards a light. Then I was pulled away from the light although I kept my eyes on it. Then I suddenly awoke on the top of the bus. I should have died. A boy in another bus got out and stopped a passing car, asking for their jack. He then swam to the bus with the jack, saying, but it was too late to knock out the windows, because the bus had already sunk by then. It was terrible. Everyone shouted and slammed against the sides of the bus windows. Most of the children were already unconscious but I caught someone stuck in one of the windows. I got her out and pulled her upstairs. Another person was exhausted when he tried to swim. I helped her and then climbed out of the water, dead tired myself. While this tragedy was unfolding, a man named Isaac Bauer was at a petrol station when a woman told him what had happened. He said, I covered the few kilometres to the dam like a maniac. There were still few people on the scene, but everywhere, school clothes and children were floating in the water. I did not notice anything else around me, 
and dived blindly into the water. The one thought that came to my mind the whole time was my nephew, Gerhard. He was on that bus. I tried to see under the water, but could not. Everything was dark. I then tried to get to the bus window with my hands. Each time, I grabbed the kicking legs and gripping arms of schoolchildren. I helped them to get to the roof of the bus. Among them, there were three girls and four boys. All of them were alive. The last one of them was my nephew, Gerhard. I was so shocked and at the same time relieved when I saw his familiar face that for a moment I did not know what I was doing. Instinct took over, I think relief too, because after I helped him to the roof of the bus, I became terribly tired. I was in the water for about 20 minutes. When I got out, I took the shocked Gerhard straight home. Before the bus went into the water, a boy named Wimpy had been standing next to the bus driver, holding onto a pole, when the bus suddenly hit the water. He said, I still do not know how I got out of that bus. I think the water must have knocked out the windscreen because the flood pushed me off my feet. All hope was to cling to the pole. Later, it did not help anymore. I'm among the grinding, kicking kids. Everyone was looking for a place to hang out. At first, the water only rose to my neck, and I remember that I took a deep breath before the dark water washed over my head. He was pinned to the roof of the bus by the water, but managed to feel with his hands and found a broken window. He said, the next moment I was free. I stuck my head out above the water and climbed onto the roof of the bus. Somewhere under the water, someone struggled to get to the top. I took another deep breath and sank under the water again. It must have been a girl because I felt her shoes. She was so sprawled that I could hardly hold her, but someone helped me to get her onto the roof. I took off my jacket and tried to wrap my sleeve around someone else in the water. He must have half recovered because he grabbed it when I pulled him to the roof. After that, I do not know much. I jumped into the water and swam to the side, where my father found me. I had always been a believer, but this disaster taught me how wonderful the Lord is. Another boy named Petrus had also been standing next to the driver. He said, The water pushed over my head almost immediately. I felt hands all over my body. I opened my eyes and saw a faint spot of light on the water. It was the sun. I tried to swim in that direction and came out of a window. I quickly stuck my head out above the water and then sank down again. I knew Bernard Lessing, my friend, was still down there. I put my hand through the window and grabbed him. Together we swam to the surface where someone took him from me. I then went downstairs for the second time, where I found Carrion Herman. I took her upstairs, but she had no heartbeat or pulse. On the roof of the bus, I saw she was already blue in the face. I learned first aid and hit her on the chest. Someone else helped me apply mouth-to-mouth breathing. Carrion would survive, but Petrus's own sister would not. Right across the road from the dam, lived a man named Johan. He heard his mother scream, the bus is in the pond. Here is what he said happened next. We immediately ran across the street. I climbed over the wire and dived into the water with my clothes on. Together with my friend Durkie, our children pulled out through the small upper windows 
until someone later indicated a jack and we were able to break some windows. The first four children had already started to turn blue. Some of the others were already quite blue. Then we realised the kids on the roof were so confused that they couldn't really help. Then Durkey climbed onto the roof himself to take on children and apply first aid. Bucks and Martin helped the children out on the shore and labourers who were quick to borrow ropes into the water saved more lives because the children could catch them. Johan was able to save 10 children. The emergency services had been notified of the unfolding disaster and Dewald van Dyke was a paramedic who arrived to see the roof of the bus on the surface of the water. He dived in and tried to break a window with his knee but couldn't. So he got out of the water and got a jack from one of the ambulances. He finally managed to break a window and pulled out a girl and started to resuscitate her. She vomited into his mouth, but she couldn't be saved. He said, the time was too long. In five minutes, the brain is dead. Dewald and the other paramedics continued to dive into the water, pulling out children. Some were saved, but some couldn't be. Dewald remembers how a police constable dived in and pulled out a girl and then realised it was his niece. He then screamed because she didn't make it. He was so distressed that he nearly drowned and had to be rescued himself. Another person who lived opposite the dam was a medical student named Jill Macraith. She heard a woman screaming for help and went outside to see people in the water trying to get onto the roof of the bus. Here is her account. By the time I got to the dam wall a few minutes later, several passers-by had started to pull children out of the water, dropping them on the road before going back for others. The first ambulance arrived within six minutes and immediately called for backup. But for the first critical ten minutes, there were only two or three of us able to do CPR, with dozens of blue, unconscious children at our feet. Within 20 minutes, numerous fire trucks, police and ambulances had arrived. But by then, we had dozens of dead children. At one point, I stood up and looked at 12 teenagers lying on the tarmac around me and thought, how do I decide who to do CPR on and who to leave? How long do I try on each person before going on to the next? The bus had been in the dam for six hours until three mobile cranes were able to pull it out of the water. On the side of the bus were the words, the best friends are simple, reliable and honest. How absolutely poignant these words would be with friends pulling out friends from the water. But so tragically, out of the 72 passengers, 42 children had lost their lives. The driver of the bus was a man named Willem Horn, who was married and had five children. Someone had managed to rescue him and he was placed on the roof of the bus but was unconscious. One of the students recalled seeing him laying there, saying, There was foam coming out of his mouth. I put something under his head. He was taken to hospital and his wife Mary was informed about what happened. She remembers that in the first few days, after the accident, he was still in shock and couldn't remember what had happened. But while he and the other students 
were recovering in hospital, there was, of course, a lot of conjecture about what had happened and why the bus suddenly careened into the dam. There was talk of mechanical failure, a tyre blowout, that the driver swerved to avoid a collision with another vehicle, or that the driver had been drunk. He came under heavy scrutiny, with rumours that perhaps he had been speeding, or that he had even driven into the dam deliberately. There were some who had already condemned him, but without any solid evidence. His driving career was examined by the police, and they gathered statements from students and his employers. What emerged was a picture of a man who had been well-liked by the schoolchildren and who had a good driving record. When Mary found out that people were blaming her husband for the accident, she was shocked, saying that he often spoke fondly of the children he transported. She said, the children got on very well with him. One of his colleagues once told him he was too gentle with the children. He spoiled them. She said that she had been told by the bus company that her husband was one of the best drivers they had. Their church minister made the following comment. My impression is that he was not capable of deliberately driving the bus into the dam. The accident was not deliberate. Mary was also contacted by some of the parents of the children, with one saying to her, Your husband was a good driver. I have ridden in the bus many times. He was a very considerate person. Mary was very grateful to be receiving such support from many people. However, some of the parents were convinced it was his actions that caused the tragedy. One parent even went to the hospital with a gun threatening to shoot the driver. Thankfully, tragedy was averted and he was then placed under police guard. There was also another factor that seemed to have contributed to Willem being accused of the tragedy. The fact that he was a black man. The accident had happened during a time in South Africa when the country was experiencing racial tensions as apartheid was unwinding. Blacks were revolting, rioting, boycotting and staying away from work. They were brutally forced by the government to obey apartheid's laws. Fearful whites were emigrating. After Willem was well enough to leave hospital, he was attacked by some men and was slashed on the neck. But thankfully, the injury was not life-threatening. Other black bus drivers were also experiencing a backlash by white passengers and complaints were being made about the quality of black drivers. While all the rumours and accusations were circulating, a thorough investigation was conducted. Students stated that he had been going faster than usual, but it was established that he had not exceeded the speed limit. Any type of mechanical failure was also ruled out. It was then that Willem's own state of mind and health came under scrutiny. The investigation had uncovered that Willem had been attacked some years earlier and then suffered from occasional blackouts. And in the first days after the accident, he couldn't remember what had happened, leaving a psychologist to conclude that he had retrograde amnesia. During his trial, he was cleared of drink driving, but the judge accepted that he must have had a blackout while driving the bus that day, and he was therefore fully acquitted of any wrongdoing. Here are his own words after being cleared. 
My family and I have been very distressed at this tragedy. I pray to God to give us the strength and to give the families of the children the strength to overcome the disaster. I express my deep condolence to the families. I want to thank all the people that stood by me and gave me messages of support and I also thank my employers for my job. With the ordeal finally behind them, Willem and Mary looked forward to continuing on with their lives. However, more tragedy struck when one of their own children was killed in a hit-and-run accident. After so much trauma and the persistent rumours that Willem was responsible for the accident, the family decided to leave the town and were never heard of again. However, then about 25 years after the tragedy, an article appeared in a newspaper that Willem had passed away from cancer. The president of South Africa at the time was P.W. Botha, and he announced that bravery awards would be given to the students who had helped to save the lives of their schoolmates. Two were given gold bravery awards, while 10 others were given silver awards. Among those were some of the students whose accounts that you heard from earlier, including Peter Cohen, who had dived back into the water five times. But so sadly, on the sixth time that he dived back in, he was to lose his own life. He was the only student who was given a posthumous award. Here is what his mother said. Peter was selfless and helpful all his life. Besides, he was fit. He was a long-distance athlete, and he would have thought he could hold out until the end. We are not bitter. The father gave us our sweet son for 17 years. What had to happen, happened. We are proud of our child because he acted like a child of God to the end. One of the fathers of these young heroes said, we do not want to say that our children are heroes. I think each of those kids on the bus will remain heroes for days to come. More than one person, whether child or adult, may never even get recognition for their part in helping our children. We must say thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Thank you to the strange men who dived into that water to help our children. Thank you to the school children who tried to save their friends. Thank you to the first aiders and others who provided assistance, thank you everyone. On that day, 42 students lost their lives. They were buried together in the Johannesburg West Park Cemetery during a mass funeral. Then, about 11 years ago, a memorial was erected on the northwestern bank of the dam. But I really can't help but wonder why it took 25 years before this memorial was erected. The school that the students went to also hold an annual memorial to the students every year. The medical student Jill, who assisted during the accident, had the following to say about what was learned from the tragedy. She said, The only positive things to come out of the whole horrible saga was that Johannesburg rewrote its disaster management plan to include mass drowning along with mine disasters, bombs, fires and airplane disasters. They also established a joint police and fire department dive team which had previously been thought a luxury in an inland city with no big rivers or lakes, just private swimming pools 
and a handful of small suburban dams. Small they may have been, but just big enough and deep enough to cover a double-decker school bus. The other student, Marcel, who managed to escape with Peter, had this to say when reflecting on the tragedy. She strongly believes that more children would have survived if they had been able to kick out the emergency window. Here is what she says. To this day, I'm amazed to read that people still have problems exiting through the emergency exits in cars and buses, and I wonder why. Why is it that manufacturers are prepared to omit a basic safety feature to save money in order to make a bigger profit? Why is it that they will fight to the death to prevent a better, safer way of doing things to be implemented? Is a life worth so little? Have we become so desensitized and callous that a life does not mean anything? To those people who refuse to improve emergency exit windows or those who squabble about wording and costs, I would like to say this. 42 children lost their lives. A third of those children could have also been saved that day if access had been easier out of that bus. If those windows had been kicked out, it would have made a world of difference. I would ask them if they would still be willing to drag their feet had it been a son, a daughter, a brother or a sister that had died that day. And to those sceptics and critics who are now sitting back with folded arms who state that what I have to say is not based in scientific fact or engineering principles, I'll say this. Personal experience in a case such as this will beat any science, hands down, any day of the week. I would like to issue a challenge to those who still prefer to argue petty details. Visit the graves of those 42 children who had died and then still try to justify the reluctance to put a proper standard in place or engineer emergency exit windows so that they actually do what they're supposed to do when there is a real emergency. Putting a sticker on something to say that it's an emergency window and then it is not amounts to fraud. Now, I don't know what the current regulations are in South Africa in regards to emergency windows, but I really hope that there have been considerable improvements. And it just makes me think the number of times that I've been on a school bus, those windows, it makes me wonder, would I be able to kick one of those windows out? Are our windows built so that they can easily be kicked out as well? Well, it's something that I don't ever want to have to find out, actually. As well as the discussions about the emergency windows, there was also scrutiny about the lack of adequate railing on the bridge. There was only a very flimsy fence, and in the days afterwards, workers were seen repairing and upgrading the fence. A search for more modern-day photos shows that a more substantial concrete barrier has now been erected. However, this story is not yet over. Now we fast forward almost 30 years later to meet a lady who lost her sister in the accident. She just happened to be on Facebook when she saw that a man had made a post that he was planning to hold a celebration for the children who had died in the bus crash. He called the event the Big Black Bray, with bray being another word for barbecue. On the face of it, calling it a celebration 
may have meant that he was planning to do it as a celebration of their lives. But, so sadly, this was not the case. The man made comments like, Their deaths were much appreciated, Lord. As he was a black man, it soon became clear that the so-called celebration was racially based. Here is what the Post said. On the 27th of March 2013, I will send an invite to you to come to the West Dean Dam for a big black beret. 100% blacks, fireworks DJ, black people celebrating their death and we will always celebrate the death of whiteness. The Post understandably caused outrage and many complaints were made to Facebook and also to the South African Human Rights Commission. A closer look at the man's social media account showed other examples of provocative statements he had made. The Human Rights Commission held a mediation meeting with the man. An agreement was reached for him to make an apology and also to go to the cemetery and clean the children's graves. Here is the man's apology. I hereby tender my summary and unequivocal apology to the general public of South Africa, the Commission, each of the complainants, and the individuals who were either directly or indirectly affected by the tragic West Dean bus accident, including those families who lost loved ones. I acknowledge the hurt and pain that I have caused as a result of the comments made on Facebook which were made in a state of anger and disappointment. I therefore truly and genuinely apologise for making such statements, and I accept the terms of the agreement as more fully set out herein, and also undertake from this date onwards to refrain from, by word and or by deed, conducting myself in a manner associated with hate and hurtful speech, or racism such as that, contained in my previous comments. Well, I'm really sorry, but I don't think this apology was sincere at all. Racists don't just make a complete 360 turn like this. He was receiving threats, and I think this was just a token apology. It's like when you see well-known people like celebrities, politicians, sports people who made some sort of transgression, and when it became public, they all of a sudden come up with a lengthy public apology, no doubt after getting advice from publicists and lawyers. And there were other aspects of this story which were very curious. The man had not even been born when the tragedy happened. So why he chose this particular event is unknown, even though I tried to look for the reasons why I couldn't find anything. And it was also surprising that the man was a journalist. But I guess Racists come from all walks of life and levels of education. So if you're interested in this story, you will find that there are lots of photos online to look at. So just search for West Dean Bus Disaster. That's spelt W-E-S-T-D-E-N-E. And also thank you to Monica Jacobs in our Facebook group who told me all about this story. Another example of people in our group or people who listen to the podcast who have been able to suggest to me such interesting stories to tell, although as they are, the stories are always tragic. But thank you anyway to Monica. And now let's preview the next episode. It's called Bezlan.
It was the first day of school in Russia. What happened? And to end this episode, I will leave you with this quote. You can't put students first if you put teachers last. Bye for now and remember to be a good apple. 